Hello, and welcome to the one-year anniversary of System Mastery, the podcast where we've beaten 24 dead horses to... uh, death, I guess. This week, John and I celebrate making it this far by reading a real, honest-to-God classic, Dungeons & Dragons. Fantasy role-playing game. Basic rules. Set one. The Red Box. The original. After this, who knows? We have a pile of suggestions from our great listeners, and are always looking for more. Now, let's get started. Welcome back. Hi, John. How you doing today? Um, great. Happy one-year anniversary. I don't think anyone listening understands how big of a deal that is for us. I don't think I've ever done any one thing for a year. Yeah, the only thing I've ever done for one year is your mom. Whoa! (laughs) Er, 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 er. These are the jokes, people. (laughs) Look forward to a year of that. (laughs) All right. So we've got we've got some classic material here. Yeah, this is a this is a special one for me. This is my copy of Basic Dungeons and Dragons. It's a third edition printing. I found it uh, some point in the '90s, I think, and it is uh, from either '81 or '83. It's uh, the original Red Box, and I found it the way you're supposed to find it. I got this for fifty cents at a garage sale. Hell yeah, you did. Hmm. And uh, it came with those dice, the special D and D dice from the early '80s, where they didn't know quite all that much about dice printing yet. Honestly, I'm sure they knew how to do it. They just didn't have the money to uh, pay production facilities. So what you got instead was a single piece of one-color plastic and a white crayon to color in the numbers. Yeah, now they, they had the grooves. You just sort of used the crayon bit to fill in the groove and then wipe off everything. And then you could see because it would differentiate. However, I want it to be known that the very first time that I ever saw that, because when I, uh, I also bought a red box, you know, for 50 cents at some garage sale, when it... It didn't come with the dice, but it said, you'll find these dice and you should fill it in with crayon. In my mind, I assumed that it was completely blank and you were just writing the numbers in crayon on the sides of the dice. And I went, how the fuck would you do that with a 20-sided die with any accuracy? This is stupid. (laughs) You have to come up with a complicated series of easily recognizable runes that you could replace the numbers (laughs) with. So it'd be like, horizontal line, vertical line, diagonal line, cross. Yeah. Seven. So, yes, seven, which replaces four, of course. Yeah, of course it does. Uh, yeah, so, uh, that, that was my earliest childhood memory of being disappointed in a role-playing game. <laughs> I think all of your childhood memories were of being disappointed in one way or another. Yeah, yeah. mostly. Hmm? We have Red Box Dungeons & Dragons here. The original, not advanced. Oh yeah, super basic. Not second edition, third edition, Pathfinder, fourth edition, fifth edition. None of those. Nope, this is the, uh, the the original. In this game, you can play as a fighter, a magic user, a cleric, ro- thief? thief, thief, thief. Yeah, I was trying to remember. It's so you're not a rogue. You no, are a goddamn thief. thief. You're a thief, and then also an elf, a dwarf, or a halfling. Yeah, which I I especially enjoy that those are their own classes. Yeah, they're the RCCs of the game. You, if you're an elf, then you're an elf. You're not an elf fighter. Yeah, they kind of are. Although you, you are, because you're an elf, are, you're just better than everyone. Well, yeah, but it pays for it, or it uh, makes up for it by having a ridiculously high amount of XP required. Well, meh. It's it's real weird. It's you can definitely see how they were just starting to turn wheels on how to build a role playing game with this thing. Yeah, there's a lot of things that are, I'd say, 
good first steps towards making a role-playing game that makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. you don't look at this and go, this is just a steaming hot pile of stupid garbage. Well, it's not like one of those soft-cover books you buy in the 90s from a, from the 90s on, like, a used book rack, and you're like, spook show? What the hell is... Oh, it's just crap. Yeah, no, you don't look at this and go, man, you you really had no idea what you were doing. Because they were coming from actually having a set miniatures game... They're like, all right, well, we already have basic rules for how to accomplish things. We're just going to try and translate that into a role-playing scenario. So it does translate a bit, though I can definitely see how this being a miniatures game would be a lot easier to balance than just trying to be, like, level progressions. Absolutely. This book basically assumes that you've never heard of a role-playing game before, and just like every other RPG we've reviewed, there's that little section in the beginning that's like, what is role-playing? But uh, this book might be right, <laughs> that people the people reading it have never heard of role-playing before. I mean, this came out before Empire Strikes Back, so oh, yeah. it's, it's old. It is it is real old. Yeah, but uh, it's interesting because they go into super detail about what role-playing games are, what they aren't, you know, you aren't casting real spells, that kind of thing. Uh, and then they open it up with a story of how your your valiant fighter enters a dungeon and meets a cleric and, and fights a goblin, fights a goblin, and, and then fights a wizard who... I think charms him. Well, you have that choose-your-own-adventure style of, did you resist the spell? Go to three. Did you not? Go to four. It's a fun little story where you play as your fighter, and it slowly introduces you to the concept of statistics. Yeah, it's like, all right, you're a fighter. You're walking around. You've got some strength. You have a strength of whatever. Good for you. A goblin is trying to hit you. On a 12 or higher, he hits you. This is because you are moderately dexterous. Yeah. Well, no... Because that's no. the biggest complaint I have so far with this, is that the ability scores do fucking nothing for you. It's real weird. You know, I, I think that's a progression you can see if you look at the modern D&D games. You can see that the ability scores became super important. Like, they were the core of the game, and that's why rolling randomly fell out of practice so much by 4th edition, where it was like, these are too important for a 3d6 roll at the beginning of the game. In, yeah, this, game, in this game, if, if you fucked up your roll and you're like, I don't have anything that's particularly useful... It doesn't matter. You're basically the exact same as you were before, except maybe you don't get as much XP. That's literally all that the ability scores do in every situation, is they control the amount of XP that you get. Uh, if you have a really high ability score in your core ability, then you get a 10% bonus to your experience. So if well, it's 5 or, or 10. 5 or 10, right. So if you have like a 15 strength and you're a fighter, you get a 5% bonus. If you have a 17, you have a 10% bonus. Yeah. And it's just 3d6s down the chart, so you go, what's my strength? Roll 3d6. What's my uh, dexterity? Roll 3d6. Yeah, there is no, you know what, I want to play a magic user, and then you roll your stats and then put them where you want. No, you just roll and then go, alright, what the fuck am I? Yep. So that's how you end up with your character. Uh, you can end up with a whole party of fighters or whatever. The game has no problems with that. Actually, the game is like, you know, if you have an entire party of fighters, that's probably for the best. Yeah. Especially if you're playing the basic rules, because everyone else is kind of terrible, unless you're an elf. So, uh, yeah, there's... Stats don't do a damn thing, but you do learn all about them. Yeah. It's funny because it slowly introduces you to each one of these stats, and the charisma's in there, for example. Charisma does nothing in this book. <laughs> at all. Yeah, they... Each stat has one thing. One thing that it does, and it's not, like, adds to your bonus for, like, damage or anything like that. Strength is the only one that actually matters, which is why you can see in later editions they were super scared about giving bonuses to strength. Yeah. Because in the original edition... Strength, strength was the only thing that gave you a bonus to hit, and so the only way you could get better at fighting was to be a high strength. That mm-hmm. was it. Yep. 
Like, having a high intelligence didn't make it so that you could cast more spells or get more spells per day or anything like that. It was just, you knew more languages. That is all intelligence does. Yeah. Uh, all constitution does is give you hit points, which makes it the only other thing that's important. Yep. Uh, charisma just makes it so that people's reaction rolls to you can be slightly better or worse. Right, but the reaction rolls are often ignored in this book, so if you, if you read through the DM section, you'll see that they, a lot of times, monsters just attack no matter what. Well, you know, if they're, what is this? It's some undead thing. It yeah. does not negotiate with you because it is a skeleton. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so dexterity is... Uh, oh, armor class does right. add to your yeah, armor does class. Add to your armor class, yes. And then uh, wisdom adds to your bonus to save versus spells. Yep. Only spells, though, not like the petrification or poison or anything else. Yeah. So to make a fighter, you start with a D8 worth of hit points. You need to have at least a nine strength, but it's better if you have more strength because you'll get more XP out of it. Yep. And then it gives you a couple of weapons you can use, and you're done. Oh wait, you also get to strap on some armor. Now you're done. And all the things you remembered about 2nd edition D&D apply here. So you've got uh, your chance to hit armor class, zero. Yeah. Although they don't call it that anywhere in the book. It's just, uh, you need to roll a 12 or higher to hit someone who's wearing this kind of armor. Yeah, they mostly just have a chart of, yeah. this is what you need to roll if this is what their armor class is, and then you would adjust based on your strength. So, to be a fighter, you need to have a strength of 9 or higher. Magic user, intelligence. Cleric, wisdom. Thief, dexterity. Uh, elf, intelligence and strength. Yep. Dwarf, constitution, and that's it. Yep. And then halfling is uh, dex strength and, and strength. And strength. Which is real weird. Yeah, they made, because they only had four classes, and they were like, alright, we're gonna put the Tolkien races in here because that's what we're doing. Yeah. And they're like, alright, elf, what is that? It's a magic user and a fighter. Is there any penalty to that? No. You can literally strap on full plate, have a full shield, have a longsword, and cast spells with no penalty. Although, uh, to be fair, to get to second level as a fighter takes 2,000 experience. To get second level as a wizard costs uh, 2,500. To get to second level as an elf costs 4,000. Yeah, but, you know, at this point in the game, we don't actually have, in basic rules, no multiclassing. So if you wanted to be a fighter and a wizard, elf is the only way to do it. Yeah, but in a game that doesn't have multiclassing, the one guy who's like, I want to be a fighter and a wizard should really be receiving a, a stern shut-up. Like, does this game allow multiclassing? Is it a part of the system? Great, then you can be a fighter wizard. Otherwise, why are you trying to grab two classes? Because it's super cool. Jim over there is just playing a cleric. Why can't you just be like Jim and play a cleric? I play fighter and a wizard. It's part of my concept. Also, I don't which, believe you've read my fiction about my character. Which character wears the most trench coats? <laughs> my DM. <laughs> okay, and then uh, dwarves are basically just fighters, but they have a chance to detect stonework construction by rolling a d6. Yeah, so they have the same HP uh, level, like d8 per level as a fighter. And then it's just sort of, you can detect traps way better than a thief ever will. Yeah. And uh, you can maybe find some hidden doors better than anyone ever will. As long as they're made out of stone. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're going to be in a dungeon because that is what this assumes you will do. Oh, yeah. This game times. is very dungeony, which is fine. I mean, it's called Dungeons and Dragons, and they hadn't had really a lot of time to branch out just yet. Yeah, no, they were like, look, this game takes place in a dungeon, and you might find a monster there, the most dangerous of which is a dragon. Fuck you, this is Dungeons & Dragons. Now, the halfling is a fighter. Is also just a fighter. It's a fighter, and he wants dexterity and strength, and the only reason he would want the dexterity is because they are very good at hiding 
uh, by standing still. And the dexterity does not affect that in any way. No, it's rolled on a d6, and on a 2, I think a 1 or 2, you automatically succeed in hiding while standing still. Yeah, so if there's any uh, furniture or shadows or anything that you could ostensibly hide behind, it includes also another player, if they are willing to stand still, Mm -hmm. then on a 1 or a 2 on a d6, you are hidden. It it is uh it's good to note that a thief to hide in the exact same scenario as that halfling has a ten percent chance to do that at first level, yeah. And, and then it progresses to fifteen at second and twenty at third, because thieves are terrible. They are goddamned awful. So I guess we should we should go ahead and talk about thieves, huh? Yeah, so thieves get a D four hit points. They D4. are the same as magic users. Mm-hmm. They can wear only very light armor, so you're only slightly better protected than the magic user. Yeah. You uh, you can use any single-handed weapon. You aren't allowed to use two-hand weapons, which is fine, because you're just going to use a regular sword anyway. Yeah. Uh, and then you get a bunch of percentages to things. Remember 2nd edition D&D had that little chart of uh, thief skills, and all of them were affected by your race and your dexterity? Well, this is the same thing, except they're not affected by shit, because you're human, and your dexterity doesn't matter. So your chance to pick a pocket is 15%. Your chance to climb a wall is 87% for some reason. Yeah, no, everything starts at, like, 10 or 15%, except for climbing, which is 87. And then climbing walls goes up by 1% per level. So it goes 87, 88, 89, while the other ones all go up by 5% per level, so it's 10, 15, 20 in most cases. There's Also, if you want to pick a guy's pockets, you have to look at your DM and say, I know I have a 10% chance, I want to pick that guy's pockets... Uh, I want to go ahead and have you roll that and then tell me what happens. I don't want any agency in this at all. Yeah, every thief skill, no matter what it is, is rolled by the DM. So yeah. if you're like, I'm going to hide, the DM goes, great, what's your percent hide? You tell him, he rolls it in secret, and then goes, you think you're hidden pretty well, regardless of what he rolled. Very early example of the DM Mother May I play style. Where it's like, the DM's, I know you're secretly fucked. Yeah, well the whole thing is, no matter what any player rolls, like if whether it's a dwarf looking for a thing or whatever, unless it is specifically you don't find whatever you're looking for, if it's hiding or trying to move silently or anything like that that could be in any way construed as a pass-fail but you wouldn't know, you always assume you passed until the DM tells you otherwise. I'm just amazed at those low percentage numbers. I feel like a random person on the street has a 10% chance to successfully pick a pocket if they need to. Yeah, and the great part is, if you fail by enough, then you just tell everyone around you that you failed. It's just, hey, did you fail? Because you rolled, like, a 50. Mm-hmm. Great, you failed by 40 or more. So now the guy knows you were picking his pocket. Everyone around you knows they you were trying to pick that pocket. And you just sort of look at the guy and go, yep, I was picking your pocket. And then you wander off. I guess you dive down a rabbit hole after chewing on a carrot for a couple of seconds. Yeah. Yeah. It's just kind of... It's a little... uh, It's a little punishing. It's weird that they insist that you should probably have a thief with you in the dungeon, and then they present you with this thing, which is useless. Like, whose pockets are you picking that that, that a 10% chance is good enough? (laughs) Yeah, the the odd thing is that they're like, alright, you should probably have a thief because he's the only one with the ability to detect slash remove traps. So like, alright, you've got a skill that no one else has access to, but you're probably just going to fail at it and get yourself killed. Right, because detect and remove traps, again, is like a 10, 15, 20. Yeah. 
So even if you're looking at, like, we're at the high end of the basic progression before you get into the advanced system, you're level 3, you're still almost never going to do this, because there's only going to be maybe five traps in a dungeon, so you might get rid of one. Yep. And it's weird to me, because I understand, okay, I understand the concept behind this. It's a progression game. You're supposed to be able to make it as high as level 10 with these books. And then higher with other books. You're supposed to get high level. So maybe by super high level, you got a 95% chance to find traps, and you're awesome. And, and if you aren't good at finding traps early, then that shows a clear progression. But this book is a self-contained Dungeons & Dragons product. You should be able to buy Redbox D&D, plunk it down on the table, and play D&D with your friends. Yeah, the other problem is it is a binary skill before they introduce difficulty classes. Yeah. So... It's one of those things like, yeah, if you get up to a high level, then you've got, like, 90% to do whatever. Okay, well, then there's no point in the game where you reach anything that's difficult for you anymore, and it doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, the... And, of course, they also have the inclusion of, if you fail to pick a lock or disarm a trap, you cannot try again until you gain a level. So weird. I've always wondered, because that's a mechanic that was existed in the second edition D&D 2, and I played both of these games a lot, but I always wondered what that represents. I I have no idea. I assume they're like, all right, you just don't have the knowledge, yeah, like the experience yet to know how to pick that lock. It's so, not that you failed because like, oh, my, uh, my pick slipped for a second there. It's you try to pick it and you go, I have no idea how to do this. And so you have to gain a level, which represents you getting better at knowing what the fuck you're doing. I guess they're. I guess they don't really say that you can't just constantly try, like for the rest of your your life. You can just sit there and keep trying to pick this lock you'll never pick. I guess that's fair. Yeah, but it, it, it's just such a weirdly punishing mechanic. It's. I I understand why they're doing it. They're doing it for balance purposes. They don't want the uh, the roll to be immaterial because if the roll doesn't matter, like if you can just keep trying again, then why roll at all? You just say I spend a. You know, I take ten arbitrary number of minutes at this lock. Yeah, exactly. I take ten. Yeah, the uh, the main thing with that though is the way XP works in this Mm -hmm. as well, because that door that is locked in a more modern version of this game, you might see the door is locked and it's stopping you from progressing in your actual quest. In this, it might be this door is locked. All it leads to is another room with a couple monsters and some treasure in it. So essentially, you just missed out on bonus XP. Because right. treasure is XP. Yeah, the game is very straightforward in saying that they would prefer for you to avoid fights. The goal of the game is to get treasure and live and leave the dungeon. In your in the opening adventure, you kill a giant snake and a goblin and get 200 gold. Or 200... I don't think it's years. coins or whatever. It, it's, they don't it's, say there's, gold. It's a, there's a garnet or a pearl or something yeah. that's worth 200 gold. And then you also get some electrum pieces and some copper. So it's like, you get 250 XP from getting this treasure. From killing two of these monsters, you get 30. Yeah, they don't want you to get in fights. Uh, but the funny thing is, they say, oh, it's very important to avoid fights whenever possible. But the tools for avoiding fights do not exist. Well, the whole thing is, I actually liked in the uh, jumping over to the DM book, Sure, there's two there books. is uh there's a fairly sizable section in there about talking and negotiating with monsters. This book, unlike a lot of other things, has a random reaction table for basically everything that isn't some mindless beast or an undead thing, mm-hmm. and they can have a reaction to you busting into their room. So I barge into a room, there's some bugbears in there. If I have a decent intelligence or charisma, and I go 
hey, bugbears, uh, no harm, no foul. And they roll randomly on the table. They could be like, yeah, all right, man, whatever. That's cool. <laughs> Just don't take our treasure. Yeah. And so you could negotiate with them. You could even be like, look, man, you give me a little bit of treasure and I'll kill your neighbor that you don't like. And they'll be like, all right, that sounds fair. I'll give you some of my treasure and you hang out with me and be my bugbear buddy. <laughs> yeah. There were a lot of different ways you could go about that. And I think it's interesting because most people think of D&D as pure hack and slash, like, open up a room, kill everything inside, take all the treasure, but it really emphasizes in this basic edition that you should be trying to avoid that if at all possible. Either sneak past them, negotiate with them, do whatever, but whatever you do, don't get into a combat because that shit sucks and your cleric doesn't even get spells until level 2. Right. So if you're level 1, you have no fucking way to heal yourself. That is one of the weirder things about the book, because we're all used to, at this point, clerics having a really good spell progression in every edition. So at first at first level, they're all casting a couple of cure lights, or whatever the domain spells are, that kind of thing. In this book, they do nothing. They walk around in the same armor as the fighter, but with less hit points and a mace. Yeah, you're basically a slightly worse fighter until at least level 2 when you can start casting spells. It almost feels like they eventually split the current this version of the cleric into the cleric and the paladin. Because the paladin picks up some spells later in his life, but is really just a fighter. While the cleric is a spellcaster first and foremost, but is also a fighter first and foremost because clerics have always been a terrible design issue in huh. Dungeons and Dragons. Excuse me, why am I going off on this rant? Uh, okay. <laughs> well, no, the... It's it's odd because outside of the thief and the magic user, everyone in this is a fighter. Yeah. And it's weird because even the magic user, because intelligence doesn't give you extra spells per day, there's no school specialization, there's nothing you can do to get extra. At level one, you know two spells, one of which has to be read magic. Yeah. So And the DM picks your spells for you. Mm-hmm. So if I'm a magic user... I sit down and go, level one, great, I know, read magic, and then Bill over there is going to tell me what my other spell is, Mm -hmm. and depending on how nice he feels, he might give me sleep, or maybe he'll give me levitate. At which point you are nothing but the party mule. Yeah, you're going to be like, oh, good, I have the fucking disc so I can carry, like, a thousand pounds worth of treasure, or... Maybe I'll have sleep, which is, again, just one of the most amazing spells ever, because you're like, walk into a room, uh... You know what? We're all kind of beat up. I cast sleep. Everyone falls asleep. They auto-die if we hit them with a bladed weapon, so fuck it. There we go. We're all set. Fuck this encounter. That's why you brought me. Can I go on a quick digression and tell you that I actually played in this and got stuck with Tensor's Floating Disc as a, sp- as a spell once, and I made the best out of that fucking spell. <laughs> like, like you would not believe. I, I would uh, I would cast it under a bridge to hold the bridge up, then, then have the fighter kick out all the other beams of the bridge. And then I'd get goblins to chase me and then turn it off as they were chasing me over the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> I would do that. I did it like three times where the DM was like, this is stupid. That spell doesn't say it can do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the the amount of dumb spells that they have is a lot. There's yeah. also some overlap between that and cleric spells. So you might get, what do you know, read magic and create light. Oh, good. Yeah, create light doesn't work the same as it does in later editions. It just creates a point of light somewhere. You the nice get... thing is, that point can be someone's eyeballs, and you can blind someone. Yeah. There is also the second level spell of continual light that never goes out, and you can just set someone's eyeballs on fire for the rest of their life, and it's my favorite thing ever in this book, <laughs> is that as a level two magic user, you'd be like, you know what? Level three. Fuck you. 
and just set someone's eyeballs alight. Yep. You have to be level three, though, because you don't get second oh, level yeah. spells till third level. Yep. And you'll probably not get continual light because, again, it's going to be your DM telling you what you got. Yep. There are rules in there for learning new spells by finding them as treasure in a dungeon. Yeah, you can find scrolls, and that's where read magic is going to come in handy, because the only way you're going to read that scroll is by read magic. Reading the, the basic wizard really gives you a sense of why people are always complaining about how wizards got super powerful by 3rd edition. You can really see all the stuff that they slowly eroded the weaknesses away from when, when they made a wizard. Like At this point, it's like, oh, I know two spells, the DM tells me what they both are. If I ever learn new spells, it's because he tells me what they are. Even when I gain a new level of spellcasting ability, if I don't know any second-level spells, I can't cast any second-level spells because I don't know any. If someone pokes me while I'm trying to cast a spell, my spell fails. I don't have any kind of armor spells. Anything that pokes me with, like, a pillow will just kill me. (laughs) Uh, The list goes on and on, but by the time you get to uh, second edition, about half of that was deemed not especially fun, and so rather than replacing it with something, they just took it away. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's really interesting. They even, there's a sidebar in there when they talk about, you know, what spells you're going to give your magic user. And it says, you are, as the DM, in total control, and if you think something's going to be a problem, you have the ability to make it not a part of your game. It says, if you don't like what Charm Person might do in your game, don't give it to the magic user. And then by the time you reach the next edition, it's, what are you, a mage? Pick whatever the fuck you want. Yeah, and you can use these to lord over the game, uh, I guess. I mean, realistically, the DM always is supposed to have that kind of fiat power. He just goes, you know what? Polymorph doesn't exist in this world because it's not very well written. Or a third edition, where he can simply eliminate that rule that says uh, unconscious creatures are automatically considered to be willing. Because huh. that is the rapiest sentence in any role-playing <laughs> game ever. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, and that's interesting. I like that. Uh, the other weird bit with that, of course... The fact that if you lose your spell book, it is assumed that no one will ever let you look at theirs. Which is really weird to me that they're like, if you have two magic users, the other PC in the party, it is just said, he won't let you look at the book. Like, Fiat, I'm going to tell you what your character does, you can't look at that, and you'll never get to look at anyone else's, and fuck you. I don't understand how anyone learns spells then. It seems like the first guy to invent a spell is going to be like, nope, no one ever gets to see how I do that spell. Fuck you. The rules say... <laughs> yeah, the <laughs> the thing is, it even says, all right, if you're a starting magic user, you have a mentor who is level 7 or higher. He teaches you what the fuck magic is. Okay, great. If I lose my spell book, why can't I just go back to my mentor and be like, dude, I lost my spell book. Can, can I, you know, get that shit written down again? And, and he like, just be like... Fuck you! And meanwhile, you are just telepathically telling people not to look at your spellbook that you have lost. Like, yeah. it's off in a dungeon somewhere, and some guy's opening, and you're like, no, no. And they're like, oh, I can't touch it. The wizard's saying no somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just weird that the only way that you would be able to do that is by taking it from someone. Yeah. So, you know, if you had another uh, magic user PC, and you lost your book... The best thing to do is wait until they fall asleep and then just fucking take it and write their shit down and then be like, great, we're done. Yep. The, uh, it's weird because it's clearly just a balanced thing. Like, it's just there because otherwise every wizard would know every spell. Yeah. But, uh, you know, in, in practice during the game, it's a little draconian. It's just, okay, yeah, you have two wizards in your party. You know what? They probably will know the new, the same spells because they're friends and it makes sense that they would both want the other one to know how to cast shield. Yeah, except they specifically do not want that to happen, so they're like, look, 
I gave you this spell and you this spell, and by God, you will have those and only those. You get sleep, and you get Tensor's floating disc, and that's the end of that. End of discussion. We're done here. And also, you're the favorite. (laughs) The wrong magic user died. (laughs) Okay, so uh, there you go. You've got your four classes, all of which are humans. There's no way to play something else. I remember when I played this as a kid, we invented Gnome and put it in the game. Why would you do that? Because I like gnomes. Ah. And it was half thief, and ha- it had all the abilities of a thief and a magic user, and it cost 3,500 XP to get to second level, which was dumb, because adding thief skills is basically just a way to make your character worse. Yeah, it was just, here's a penalty to being anything. Yeah. Here's some skills you should never roll, because they will fuck you. Yay! They'll wait till you're unconscious, and then fuck you, because you're willing. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's good. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's going to come with all of these classes. The book does come with a set of pre-made characters. So, in case your group has no idea what they're doing, and, you know, it's really old, so back in the day you probably didn't. And, honestly, it was probably better to take one of these pre-gen characters than try to roll your own shit. Lord knows they gave that fighter at the beginning of the book some really good stats, considering he rolled 3d6 down the line to get them. Oh, yeah, he's got... Like a 17 or 18 strength. 17 strength, a a 14 charisma, a 16 constitution, a 14 dexterity, a 12 intelligence, and an 8 wisdom, I think. Yeah, he just wasn't wise, that was it. He's got one dump stat, and the only one that's below average. So he's just an amazing dude, and he deserves to live through that adventure. (laughs) So uh, they also have... Uh, we didn't really get into it, but there is a way that you can adjust your stats in this. Oh, yeah, there is a cool little stat adjustment system. So yeah. after you're done rolling up, but the the most interesting thing is the stat adjustment happens after you pick a class, which means if you didn't randomly roll the ability to be an elf, say, and you really wanted to be an elf, you can't use the uh, the stat adjustment to get to be an elf because this is it's supposed to represent... Your character spends a lot of time working on X at the expense of Y. Right. So you're like, all right, if you want to raise your strength score and lower your intelligence, it means that you worked out a bunch instead of reading. Mm -hmm. Great. So you got stupid at a significantly faster rate than you got strong, though. Yeah. You trade a two for one. Yep. It is kind of neat, though, because other stats don't do anything at all. For your character. So if you already had a, an intelligence that wasn't giving you any great bonuses, there's no reason to dump it down to a three and get yourself a nice high strength. Except I think there's a limit to the amount you, you can, can do only it. dump down to nine. Yes, that's right. So if you have two really good stats, choose the class you want to play as and dump the other one to nine. Yeah. Uh, and if you manage to randomly roll a good enough stat in something that actually gives you bonus XP to something and you don't want to lower anything else, it doesn't really matter. Like, maybe you go, uh, I don't really care about my charisma, which is almost always the dump stat, because you're like, it doesn't do anything except for the uh, reaction rolls for people. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure we've probably got someone who's going to have that decent. So, fuck it, I'm dumping into nine. That is one of the weirder things about charisma, is that you're going to have, when you you bust into a room and they make a reaction roll, you're going to be one guy who's like, oh, I have a charisma of 15, let's use my reaction roll adjustment. Uh, I'll, I'll be the one who talks to them. I'll be like, sup, bugbears? Except, of course, this is where intelligence comes into play, because they have to understand you. Ah, yes. So if you come into the room and you're like, what do you speak? Well, I dumped my intelligence to eight, so I speak common and that's it. Oh, I speak common and chaotic. Mm. Yeah, oh, right, this has alignment languages. Yeah, uh, so 
then if you talk to the bugbears and they don't know what the fuck you're saying, then the guy who's got a charisma of eight, but is like, I speak bugbear, stewardess. I'll, I'll translate for my cool friend. <laughs> then you go, hey man, uh, this guy says like, I don't know, you're kind of a dumpy, hairy bitch. And they're like, oh, he's right. <laughs> wow, we really are. <laughs> also, I like the way his eyes just peek over the tips of his really cool sunglasses. <laughs> and his hair is perfect. Yeah, so uh, that would be how you adjust your stats. There you go. Uh, and as we just mentioned there, this does have the alignment, but it doesn't have the nine-point alignment like the later editions do. No, it doesn't have the axis. It's just got chaotic and lawful and neutral. Yep, and that's it. Yep. And oddly enough, you know the language of whatever your alignment is, which is super fucking weird to me. I don't me. know where they pulled that from. That's the strangest thing. I, I can't see the influence that leads to chaotic being a language. Like, that's not a Tolkien thing. No, I mean, it makes sense when you're like, you're playing an elf, you speak common and elven. Okay, great, that makes sense. Yeah. Or you're playing as a rogue and you also have, like, thieves can't or something. Okay, great. Again, there's something that ties it into whatever you are. But... Lawful or chaotic or neutral is just, how do you tend to view the world? Oh, I, I try to, you know, play by the rules, or I think of only me first. Okay, great. How does that translate into talking to someone? Or are you just like, hey, buddy, I like me, and they're like, oh, I understand what you meant. I'm ambivalent regarding you. Oh, no. And me. I'm also ambivalent regarding me. <laughs> Except neutral in this one isn't true neutral like later editions. Neutral is just sort of, you'll try and keep yourself safe. You'll keep your word because probably someone will stab you if you don't. I obey the golden rule. Yeah. That's pretty much what neutral is. Neutral is just, what do you do? You do whatever's going to be good for you, and chaotic is you do whatever the fuck you want. Right. And also speak a new language because of that. Yeah, why not? I like to think what these languages are. I figure lawful is probably German. And then chaotic is probably uh, American. American, fuck yeah. yeah! Not not English, American. Hell yeah, you speak American, son. Get out. Just do whatever the fuck you want. Woo! <laughs> USA, USA. People telling me to eat healthy is socialism. Yeah. <laughs> you just walk into a fucking dungeon, kick down the door, shoot everything, eat a hamburger, call it a day. Freedom delivered, motherfucker. Bruce Springsteen. Woo! <laughs> All right, sure. Fair enough. <laughs> so, uh, let's get a few more of the stats in this thing out of the way. Hit points in this game. Yep. Always roll. Always, always roll. The, you, the DM do, does have a section where it goes, look, man, you might just give everyone at first level max hit points because maybe you don't want everyone to die, but, you know, probably don't. Yeah. Like, if you roll a fighter up with one hit point, that's what you are. Have fun with that. Yeah. You're going to die in your first adventure. Sorry. There is, there's several points where the, the book goes, Look, uh, if you, like, if you roll up a character and they don't have a stat that's above nine at all, maybe re-roll that. But check with your DM first, because he might just tell you, no, you're playing that, get out. Except there's no, there's no class you could be if you No, a fighter actually doesn't oh. have any requirements. Oh, okay, you so can you always can be, be a, a shitty fighter. That's great. Maybe you have to be a fighter if you happen to roll below average by a bit. That's fantastic. So there you go. Uh, okay. The DM book. Yep. Has some instructions on how to be a DM. It's got the rules for how to react, or how monsters react to things. It has its own little monster manual built into it. Mm-hmm. And it's got some treasure guides. Yep. I, want- I would like to say, at the very beginning of that, though, one of my other uh, favorite things that it does that is a twist on what you see in a lot of other role-playing books, 
Normally, it's got the golden rule of if something doesn't make sense, change it, or if you don't like a rule, use your own, whatever. This one instead says, be fair. It doesn't matter what's going on, but if you change a rule or you do something, make sure it applies to everyone evenly and try to make sure everyone is treated fairly. And it doesn't say ignore rules or do whatever. It's just, hey man, if you're playing this game, try not to be a huge dickhole. Which is great. They knew real early that Dungeons and Dragons players were going to need that advice regularly and on purpose. Yeah. Hey man, just fucking come please on. don't. Come on. Why? Don't don't be like that. Now it's also got a monster manual in it, which I'm a huge fan of the little monster manual that's in this book because uh it, it shows the history of D and D really well. A lot of the monsters that I would have thought were introduced in first edition in like the Monster Manual two and the Fiend Folio that are just like some living shenanigans. Uh, they're already here. They started right away with some of these monsters. It's got your Sturges. I, I'm trying to remember some of the others off the top of my head, but uh, it's got your Owlbear. I like that uh, a Neanderthal, parentheses, caveman, is a monster you fight. Oh, sure, yeah. Like, well, I don't know what happened to that in later editions. Why aren't we fighting cavemen anymore? I know, that's really kind of a classic thing, that to fight some cavemen in a cave that or a dungeon that you're in. I bet you that they're still in the other books, we just don't really see them as directly, because there are more than ten monsters. <laughs> I also like one of the other ones that I don't normally see in a book is the Shrieker, which is just a mushroom, a that, mushroom that yells. I know, that's just a that, that's just a dungeon feature, really, if you think about it. It's, it's almost equivalent to, like, a secret door or something. It's like, what's this? It's a mushroom, and when you get near it, it automatically alerts other monsters. Yeah, it's it reacts to light. So it is one of those things where it's like, okay, if I've read through the DM book and I have player knowledge, I can go, all right, that's a mushroom that hates light. Everyone put out your torches, we're going to sneak by the mushrooms, and then we're going to go on our way. Because, you know, if you killed the mushrooms, no one would give a fuck. Meanwhile, the DM was just describing mushrooms for the purposes of having the room look more than a a featureless 10-foot square. Yeah. And now he's like, why is everyone turning off their lights and sneaking through? This is weird. (laughs) You guys are so strange. Yeah. Every time I describe what a room looks like, you keep tapping every square and then turning on and off the lights, doing a little jig, throwing chickens into it. (laughs) I hope this doesn't continue for four more editions of Dungeons & Dragons. (laughs) Although, if you think about it, first edition and second edition in particular really, really took this whole, the Shrieker concept to its logical extreme, to the point where you could easily make an entire dungeon out of nothing but just living parts. You'd be like, what's this? Oh, well, there's a gelatinous cube that's occupying the square pool in here. Uh, the floor is made out of a living floor. The ceiling is a living ceiling. The walls are living walls. There are hanging executioner hoods in there that are going to fall on your cloakers. head and try to eat you. There's cloakers hanging from the wall. The whole room is alive. Everything's a monster in here. In fact, you just walked into a giant worm, that's what the dungeon is, har har har, fuck you. All these trap options that, that, I feel like that was one of the things that majorly defined first edition D&D, was it was just a big series of fuck you traps. Yeah, well, considering the book mostly, again, had that sensibility of, if there's a monster, don't fight that monster, try to get around that monster, be smart. The whole game played out with, all right, how are we going to do any sort of damage to a player if they just don't engage monsters at all? And mostly it was, well, you put some traps in there, it gives the thief something to do aside from stand in the back and be sad. Oh, God, yeah. So, uh, fair enough. Yeah. Oh, uh, one more thing I really wanted to talk about from the first book is uh, the roles of the players. Because this book's got the DM, the yep. Dungeon Master, and then it has two special roles for your players. 
One of them is the mapper, and his job is to draw the map that the DM has already drawn, except that he has to do it on descriptions from the DM. Yep. So, like, you enter a ten-foot room, so Jerry, draw a ten-foot room. There's a door to the north, got it. There is a one-way door to the south, got it. There's a little key for how to draw one-way doors, okay, I got that covered. Uh, there is some scattered spikes along one area of the far eastern wall. Okay, putting those in. No, you didn't do that right. Change it again. Uh, you can't see my map, because it's a secret. Huh. And uh, in addition to the mapper, there is the collar. The collar is one of the more interesting things in here. Yeah, the collar doesn't exist outside of this, essentially. I've never seen one before or again. No, it's not like this is anything that transferred over to not even just other D&Ds, but any other game. So the collar's job, when presented with information from the DM about what's happening in the dungeon or what the monsters intend to do during a combat round, the, co- the caller's job is to consult with the other players to determine what each player is doing, and then inform the DM of all of the player's decisions at once. He's the electoral college of the game. Yeah, the, the book has an odd notion of what the DM-player relationship is. Yeah. It mentions multiple times that it just keeps going, Look, until combat happens, you aren't going to deal with people individually. Like... If someone wants to do something or something's happening, whatever, that doesn't matter to you. All that matters is what the group does. And until combat happens and you slow down and you start saying, all right, what do you do? What do you do? Until that happens, you're just dealing with a group. And so the caller is there to just go, look, this is what the group does. This is our marching order. This is where we're going. This is what we've decided to do with this door, whatever it happens to be. He's a union rep. And it actually stresses that the caller should not make decisions for the other players. His job is to get their input and then deliver that input to the DM, who is above talking to them otherwise. Yeah, it it has sort of a you-are-above-them-all sensibility of it's just like, until combat starts, you're mostly going to be half asleep, just sort of hand-waving anything that happens and telling people there are traps. And then as soon as combat starts, then you'll have to actually wake yourself up and pay attention to everybody. Yeah, I, I played basic D&D for, I, I want to say, seven years straight. Uh, because I spent a lot of time camping, and this is the easiest game to bring you with you on a backpacking trip, because it's just two skinny little books yeah. uh, that won't fall apart, like the early printings of Tales from the Floating Vagabond, which was my actual other camping game. Huh. Uh, however, we never used the collar or the mapper at all, because they aren't really essential. It's just interesting that they put them in there. I feel like they were doing it so they could train players to eventually be DMs. It's like learning how to talk to players and determine their input and, and work that input into a, into a concise manner. And then meanwhile, how to draw maps. It was like, one of you guys is going to be the expert and they're going to train the players to be future DMs. I think, well, I mean, the mapper thing is interesting to me from a play perspective because it informs what they think play is going to be. Yeah. It's not just, all right, we go through, we do whatever, and then we hand wave the end because we beat the boss. There's, because everything is based on treasure and whatnot, there's actually a sense that you might go through and find the boss and beat the boss of whatever this dungeon is, but then you would want to go back through and try and find little secret passages and little ways to find other guys because beating up the boss didn't give you any fucking XP. That didn't matter. What you want is more treasure. Yeah, by 4th edition you had this point where it was, you know, the average dungeon has three fights in it, and you're going to find those three fights no matter where you go in the dungeon, because that's what the game is. The game is fight set pieces. Oh yeah, it's basically 
uh, a cave that is corridor, opening, corridor, opening, corridor, opening. Yeah, and even if you take a secret passage, you maybe find the same fight, because it's really easy to move them over. This book's like, okay, you're as the play, DM, you're going to spend several hours sitting down with graph paper and drawing a bunch of squares connected by a bunch of rectangles with little S's to indicate that the doors are secret. Uh, and then you're going to run your players through that. You're building basically a game board for them to run through. The weird thing is that for all the time you spend developing the exact square footage of all these dungeon spaces and all the angles of incidents at which uh, hallways occur and so on, there's no... The combat's entirely theater of the mind in this. There's no... You know, this is coming from a game that was based on a miniatures game, but there's no like, oh, if I move five feet away from that guy, he'll get a free attack on me, or if I block that guy's passage, uh, he, he can't move past me. Yeah, no, the whole thing is like, you might have minis to keep track of what's going on. Mm. Otherwise, it's just, hey, you're fighting things, and they hit whoever the fuck they want, and they go wherever they want, and they just fight people. And they swing when they want, because initiative isn't really a thing either. Well, you do. You have initiative, although it's... Rolling on a D6 instead of a D20, which I thought was kind of odd, but whatever. You know, in first edition, it was a D- I think first and second edition, it was a D10 instead of a D20 as well. So, they've been slowly moving that up the chart. Yeah. Maybe a new fifth edition, it's a percentile roll. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not. Probably not. <laughs> no, they're trying to, because it's basically third edition again, right? Yeah. That's, 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 that's good. Th- that's the rumor on the wind. Okay, so uh, what else we got to talk about in this thing? So it gives you, in addition to uh, the, the DM advice of, like, parry your monsters and try to make things interesting and put a whole bunch of rooms that players will probably never see in there, it then goes on to give a lot of newbie advice for, like, all right, what are the type of adventures you can send people on? So it's like, there's a quest to find a thing, a quest to kill a guy, there's a quest to discover information. There's a quest, and so it gives you this whole rundown of like protecting a village, trying to do whatever, and then it tells you what you would probably find in there. Uh, gives you an idea of what kind of monsters live in what type of areas, and what type of monsters are better for what type of adventures. So it, I mean, given that this is super old, it actually is some decent advice. Sure. Yeah, well, one of the things that I really wanted to stress about this game going into it is that this game is super, super ancient, and yet it's way better than a lot of the games we've read that are newer. Oh yeah, you could sit down and play this, and outside of the guy playing the thief, pretty much everyone is like, alright, I've got something I'm doing, whatever. If you're at first level, you're probably going to be pretty sad if you're a cleric or a magic user, which really flips the entire dynamic of this game on its head from what it used to be, where... You basically are more effective as a fighter than you are as anything else until, like, really late into advanced rules. Until another whole box, the fighter really rules this game. Yeah, because the fighter's straight up doing something every single encounter. He's got the most hit points. He's the most effective at what he's doing. He's going to go up and level the fastest. And it's, uh, it's just interesting to me to see the fighter as, like, the star of the show... And then maybe you've got a couple other guys, but they're mostly just there for, like, I'm going to help out. So I can, you know, remove some traps, and I'm here to, you cast knock on a locked door or whatever. I do think that the fight, the uh, wizard still does, or magic user, excuse me, excuse me, still does the job of setting the pace of the game. Because this game's got no qualms about people hightailing it the hell out of a dungeon at any point. You're only supposed to explore until you feel like you're not safe anymore. There's no reason to stay down there further. So you go in, and as soon as the wizard goes, sleep spell, and, you know, you kill all the goblins in that room, you'll be like, you know what, we're done, we're good. 
let's haul all these weapons and gold and stuff out of here and then uh, come back in tomorrow and start from the same point. It's a good thing we have this carefully detailed map. Yeah. Uh, and that's one of the other reasons that you end up having that mapper in the game is because it kind of assumes that your characters will at some point go, uh, you know, we're level two, we have one Cure Light Wound spell, and everyone in our uh, party has been pretty well fucked, so Let's I'm out. leave, yeah. Although, again, I feel like the mapper is just completely unnecessary. If you as the DM spent a bunch of time drawing a map, and if you're playing a party or you're running a party where a couple of them are relatively or credibly intelligent, you could just give them the map after you've gone through that section of the dungeon. You could be like, here, here, just, here's that part of the map. That's yeah, what it looks like. You obviously drew the entire map on one piece of uh, paper, so it's not like you're going to be able to hand out sections of it. That's true. I guess you, we used to do that, and the way we would do that is we would, you know, put our hand over that section and be like, this is the part of the map that you guys have seen already. It wasn't that big of a deal. Eh. All right. Well, anyway, John. Yes? <gasps> What is your favorite part of basic Dungeons and Dragons Dungeon Master's Rulebook? I'm sorry, I made the wrong thing. Fantasy role-playing game, basic rules, set one. Yeah, set one. Uh, I want to say that my, my favorite thing is the, the dynamic between the advice and what actually the rules are. Like, it's not the best thing about it, but it is my favorite thing in that it has a lot of, like, all right, you're rolling 3d6 down a line. And you can ask your DM if this character is terrible and not to use it. And there's a lot of like, hey, maybe don't have a character who's only got one hit point. If they roll a one or a two, just have them re-roll their hit points. Mm -hmm. It's got a lot of things in there that it's like, as a DM, you can go ahead and say, look, I know that the rules say ma, but I'm going to say you can actually have a better character. The the problem with that is that eventually got turned into the DM has total control over everything you do and anything you want to do is going to be determined by his say-so. But in this book, it does feel a lot like if you're feeling nice as a DM, you can break the rules to help your players rather than if you're feeling like a dick as a DM, you can uh, enforce rules to hurt your players. Absolutely. So I feel like it's got a better the way that it's written is more in the favor of DM player relationships rather than being anti-DM player relationships. Sure, that seems fine to me. And what would your favorite thing be? I like how rules-light this system is. I mean, we've played some systems that only have like two or three rules, but you still end up needing a huge book to explain all the fluff and concepts. This book, I've said it already during the podcast, but I used to play this while I was backpacking. When I was a Boy Scout, I would take these books backpacking with me, and sometimes I just wouldn't take them. Because we all had the rules memorized, and as long as no one was playing a thief, which was common, huh. you could t- you could play this entire game in your head with no trouble. We didn't even need dice because we used the millisecond part of the stopwatch for our dice rolls, and and it was great because the whole game is easy. It flows quickly, and once you get it into your head, it's got the, it's the easiest game in the world to build a basic array of system mastery over. You can easily learn how to play it and play it wh- even without the books there. Yeah, no, it it is very much a system that. If you go into this knowing nothing, it's like, what do you need to know? Uh, what am I hitting? That. Okay, great. That's it. Yeah. I don't need to know anything else. Super simple. So, there you go. That's that's the thing I particularly enjoy about this. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what would you say that your least favorite thing about Dungeons & Dragons whatever is? <laughs> basic set. Yeah. Uh, honestly, it's the class balance, which has always been an issue with any edition of D&D. Although in this 
particular set, it swings to the fighter being too good and everyone else being too bad. I mean, when you look at a cleric as level 1 being a shitty fighter that has a shitty option for what weapons he can use, and no spells... And slightly less hit points. And less hit points, you're like, uh... Okay, if you're starting at level 1, what guy goes, yeah, I'm the cleric, and, well, the guy who says that is the one who rolled a 16 for his wisdom. Yeah, but it's the forward-thinking guy who's like, oh, eventually I'll have a spell. Yeah, it's it's weird to me, and especially given that if you manage to roll fairly well, like the guy that they roll up in the, the fighter example, he should have been a dwarf or an elf. Yeah. He really should have, because both of them are just better than being a fighter in pretty much every way, except the elf has slightly less hit points. And, and gains XP slower. But yeah. yeah. But you get to have spells and be a fighter. Yeah. It's the only edition where you can straight up be a full plate mail, shield-wearing, spell-slinging guy and not give any fucks. And you are just as good at fighting as you are casting. Right. I, yeah. I mean, there are other editions where they've made that gish ability so overpowered that, yeah, you can just be a plate mail fighter with a, with a spell. Because 3rd edition in particular had way too many splat books. Well, once you get to a point where you're like, alright, I combine this and this and this and that and this feat and that feat, and now I've got some stupid bullshit. But in this, it's straight up, I picked this as my class, and right out the box, I am going right for the gusto. I picked Elf. And even then, how much more powerful are you than the fighter? Like, Well, again, you've got one level one spell, so... Yeah, you can cast Sleep once a day. Yeah, well, if your DM lets you, you might have, I don't know, Shield, and he's like, haha, you already have a Shield, fuck you, stop trying to game the system, I hate Elves, I hate you, go <laughs> I away. A, I got a lot of that in the early editions of the game, people would be like, Elves are fucking stupid, and I don't want Dwarves in the party, and so on, it was like... Okay, I, I understand that you have a weird bend towards wanting to play a super gritty, realistic game, but this is a dungeon full of orcs. I, well, no, I think for me it would just be, the only reason I don't like elves or the other demi-humans is because they are just the other classes but better. Yeah, that's true. I, I can see in 2nd edition in particular, I, I imagine that people didn't like elves and dwarves because they lended themselves towards a certain style of play. Like, you remember playing 2nd edition when it was the edition, right? Yeah. And how, there was never a dwarf in that game ever that wasn't a Scottish drunk. <laughs> like, ever. Every single dwarf. Ah, laddie! I need a drink! Just oh. every single one of them. Yeah. Why not? Uh, I don't... Where did that come from? I... I honestly can't say. Like, I remember it being in basically everything ever, and I don't know the origin of it. It's like a universal memory. Like, I mean, okay, now that there's there's Hobbit movies, and we've all seen dwarves in, in action, and they've toned down that ridiculous accent for a few of them, because Lord knows Gimli had it. Huh. But uh, before that, everyone was like, yeah, dwarves. Dwarves have thick Scottish accents, but they wear armor all the time, and they all want beer at all times. They always have beer in one hand and an axe in the other. That's a dwarf, but, but goddamn, they need that Scottish accent. Oh, yeah, no, when, you know, World of Warcraft comes out, and they're like, here's our dwarves, and everyone goes, yeah, that's a dwarf. That's, that's exactly right for a dwarf. It's a shared universal memory from nowhere. It just popped unbidden into people's heads. Yeah, but, I love that. Yeah. That makes me so happy that everyone just decided one day, yeah, yeah, that's a dwarf. And meanwhile, elves all end up with names like Philandalal and things that have a bunch of L's and, and, and K's in them because that's what people think of for their elves, and they always give them kind of an arch-British accent. Yeah. Same thing. Shared universal memory from nowhere. <laughs> Uh, okay, so, we've talked a lot about that. What is your least favorite thing about this game at the time? I, I don't particularly care for the fact that stats don't really do much. 
Like you get to roll them yeah. and so on, but they, there's just they just don't inform anything. I mean, yeah, we've established that each one of them does one thing, and then one other thing, and the other thing being that it maybe gives you extra XP. And again, the XP problem it leads to itself to another problem. If you have two fighters in the party and one of them's got a 15 strength and the other one's got a 14 strength, so one of them gains level two first, it's like, oh, well, that sucks. The only reason that happened is because you rolled slightly better on dice than me a long time ago. And the other thing is, especially given some of the stats. You look at something like Charisma, which doesn't inform the XP at all, and it does only one thing. If you're doing a straight roll down and you get to Charisma and you roll an 18, how fucking sad are you? Well, actually, you're feeling pretty good, because you're going to dump that thing for, uh, what? Like, six points? Six points to one of your major stats. Well, no, you dump it for, I don't know, four points. Four, four, still, four points is a fine swing. If you got a 13 somewhere else, you're, doing, you're sitting pretty. Yeah. Although I think... I don't know. There's some stupid bullshit on how you can lower things. Yeah. But it's still one of... It's one of the things where if you have a stat that doesn't do anything, maybe don't have that stat. I know. And, and Charisma has had that problem for forever. I mean, it's it's no Palladium where you have six stats that do nothing. <laughs> That's so true. But at least, you know, if you're going to have a stat that does nothing... Then fucking either make it do something or get rid of it. How long after basic was it before charisma meant to every twelve year old in the world who plays this game hotness? Uh, immediately. Like immediately, right? Because that's all it could possibly do. It it affects how uh, how well you react to meeting a knoll in the in the uh, dungeon, but also it probably tells you how big your boobs are. Probably. Yeah, I mean, really, if we're being realistic, it's it's probably directly translatable to Brock up. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is dong size given a numerical value. Wait, oh wait, dong size does have a numerical value. Oh, it's also got a metaphorical value. Yeah, which is priceless. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, would you play basic Dungeons and Dragons? I would. It's weird because you have such a range of options. It's like, like, why would you at this point? When you no, go? I mean, if someone was like, "I'm gonna run old D and D basic," I go, "You know what? That's." Just interesting enough to actually hook me in, and sure. And I would not feel bad if I rolled like crap and was a fighter. I'd be like, whatever, fighter's great, I don't care. What if you rolled like crap and was a thief? Then I would be the saddest motherfucker there was. Yeah. I would just be like, alright guys, you have fun, I'm gonna stand in the back. I'm gonna climb so many walls, you have no idea. <laughs> and then if I fail to climb that wall, I will probably die from falling damage. Yeah. Okay, well, there you go. So yeah, you would... so would you play this? I have played this. I well, played I know this... you have played yeah. it. I'm saying would you, oh, right what, now. Would I continue, right now? Right fucking now. Roll up a character, 3d6, <laughs> down the line, go. Hey, I rolled a bard. There is no bard. Uh, no, okay, no. Uh, actually, <laughs> no, without a bard, no. Not without a bard. Not without my bard, starring Meredith Baxter Burney. <laughs> trying, to, trying to imagine what country keeps bards like... like Attached to their their fathers, like you, that bard has to stay with the father. It is our religion. Let's <laughs> <laughs> go to the underground railroad network for bards. Get him out of here. Anyway, no, uh, yes, I would play this game because it's fun. It's easy to play. It's not a big deal. Uh, the, again, it's, it just comes down to the fact that there are so many options that have superseded this thing over the years that it's really hard to envision the situation where someone would be like, oh, "I want to play any edition of Dungeons and Dragons that has extra rules in it. I want to play the one that's got nothing." Yeah, the only thing that really sells this over anything else is, one, you don't have the stupid, like, bullshit OP, I've got a million splat things, so even if someone's trying to min-max, they're not going to. Oh no, it's impossible to min-max this game. And uh, the other thing is, 
it's a game that I feel like you could just do in like the classic two hours of just we sit down, we play, we're done. Yeah, it's basically like a board game or a video game. It's just at this point you've got D&D board games that do that exact thing with that exact level of involvement. And that's fun. Yeah. I would just do that. Play rather some than... uh, Castle Ravenloft or yeah. Wrath of Ashkardalon. Yeah. Yeah, but, all right. But not that Drizzt game, because fuck that guy. I, I always forget that one exists, because Castle Ravenloft is the shit. It is indeed the shit. That's the one to play. So in summation, play Castle Ravenloft, the 4th edition Dungeons & Dragons board game. That That is the takeaway here. That's what we want you to take home from this, <laughs> if anything. And uh, I think there you go. We've, we've, we've made it a year. One whole goddamn year. Should we keep going? I mean, I already paid the registration for the site, so... Oh, well, I mean, sunk costs. I may as well. Yeah, I'm not going to waste that money. <laughs> so, uh, so in two weeks, join us again. I think, I think we're going to talk about Car Wars. Possibly. If I can uh, get John to read it. Maybe. Read Car Wars. Uh, Steve Jackson, though. I hate yeah, that guy. It's fine. I've read Toon. It's all gurpsy. He got his gurps all over it. <laughs> it's just dripping with gurps. <laughs> Gurps and gorps. Oh, I went home with that lady, and then I came back, and I, I had gurps. Oh. <laughs> no lady in the world has gurps. <laughs> gurps is a social disease. <laughs> okay, so, uh, as always, we have been System Mastery. You can find us at SystemMasteryPodcast.com, or on Twitter, Facebook, Gmail, uh, at System Mastery. Just find us at any one of those, and drop us a line if you want us to review any particular game you like. Or if you just want to tell us we were wrong or if we're great, something like that, by all means, drop us a line. We are also under System Mastery on iTunes and Stitcher, so subscribe and leave comments telling us how great we are so that we can get on everyone else's playlist, too. I think that's it, so, John, thank you and good night. Yeah!